On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. We're in the old city of Jerusalem, Mike, and we've come to a place associated with the condemnation of Jesus. Where are we? Well, we are very close to uh, the Ekehomo, Behold the Man Arch in the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, but we're actually just a little away from that because while that location, the Ekehomo Arch, was thought to be the exact location. Archaeologists have now discovered that comes from a slightly later period. But what they have discovered is right where we are now, just a hundred yards or so away from that, they've actually unearthed the pavement of the slabs of the courtyard of the Antonia Fortress. So we are sitting right now where that great Antonia Fortress would have been that towered over the temple and that towered over the city of Jerusalem and from which Rome kept its eye on all that was going on around. So the significance of the Antonia Fortress? Well, it was a power base. <laughs> it was where Rome had its headquarters here in the city. Now, Caesarea Maritima up on the coast, one of those great places that Herod the Great built, one of his many great building projects, was the sort of day-to-day -day base of the governor, the Roman governor of this area, Pilate at this time. Um, but here, the Antonia Fortress was a base where they would have had soldiers and where he would have come, maybe he might have stayed in Herod's palace nearby, maybe he stayed there, we're not quite sure. But it really does speak of the power base. This was where the Roman army was based in this region. This was where soldiers went out on patrol from. And as I said, it towered over the temple. So it was as if they are making a point here saying, you know, don't forget who's in control here. Okay, we let you Jews worship your God and have the temple there, but we are the ones who are in control. It's a popular place for pilgrims to come. There are groups coming through. There's a school opposite uh, as well. I think we might be able to hear some children in the background. But this is where Jesus was condemned to death. Yeah, we're pretty sure that we are right now very close to that place where he would have been condemned. And these lovely huge slabs of stone underneath our feet that are now almost polished, almost slippery in places from generations of people walking over them and pilgrims visiting. And even as we just look out here, David, we, you know, we can see and hear people of all different languages. I can look over there, pretty sure it's a Nigerian group there. I've just heard uh, a group that I think was Japanese. Uh, I can see Malaysians over there, Americans. So this is a very popular place to follow in the steps of Jesus as it led from his condemnation to the cross down what's called the Via Dolorosa that we look in a future episode. Who was it who had the final say who actually condemned Jesus to death? Well, eventually it would have to be the Roman governor because at this time he was really the only one who had the authority to impose the death penalty. Now, when Rome conquered Judea, 
they gave them a, a reasonable amount of, of latitude. You know, as long as they paid their taxes, they tended to let them get on with life. The Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, was allowed to deal with day-to-day matters and smaller matters. But for a matter of life and death, um, really that authority lay with the Roman governor, with this guy, Pilate, who'd become governor here just a few years earlier in um, AD 26 and was governor here for, for 10 years. In the Roman world, what authority did Pilate have? Oh, he had absolute authority here because he was Rome in this place. He was the representative of Rome. When he was sent from Rome here in AD 26, he was sent, you know, with his uh, letters of instruction and that was his mandate. The whole might of the Roman Empire was summed up in this one man who'd been based here. Now, actually, you know, where did he fit in the sort of hierarchy of Rome? Probably fairly low down, actually. We do know from secular sources that Pilate had um, messed up, really, in his previous posting. Uh, And so he'd been sent here. And this part of the world was seen by Rome, really, as a bit sort of the back of beyond. So it wasn't a high-flying position that he'd got here. But what he knew was that he had to get this right. And that if he messed up here, um, that would almost certainly have been the end of his career, if not the end of his life. So it's close to here where ultimately Pilate makes his decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Very close by. We can't be 100% sure uh, of where it was. There was an area just very close to here that archaeologists were originally pretty convinced was the area where it would have taken place. but we can't be 100% sure. But you and I are incredibly close to where it happened. You and I have got our feet on the stones that these people would have walked over. But for Pilate to make his final decision, he needed to gather sufficient evidence, and presumably from the one who's been accused. Yes, yeah, so why don't we take a look at that part of the trial? We've, we've looked already in a previous episode at Jesus' trials, but why don't we sort of zoom in now to what happened when Jesus is brought before Pilate. And as we do, perhaps maybe let's see how two different people who have two very different kinds of power interact with one another. Now, we're going to read the version that is in John's Gospel, the whole events leading up to the crucifixion are in all the Gospels. But I'm reading from John chapter 18 and verse 28. And we'll, we'll read the first part and perhaps come back to the second part later. So John says this. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to ask them, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words that Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. So Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. And with this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release for you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man, eke homo in Latin, behold the man, which that arch recalls. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Well, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where'd you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it weren't given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is called Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. So finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Back to the courtroom for a moment, 
and clearly no judge and jury. <laughs> well, there was a judge, but there certainly wasn't a jury, was there? Because the Jewish religious leaders were resolved on what they wanted. They knew the outcome. And that whole story, as we read through it, really is one of pressure being put on Pilate by these Jewish religious leaders. You know, at first it starts out with them saying, well, we wouldn't have brought him here unless we'd got a good case, would we? Though clearly they've got no evidence to, to back that up. And Pilate interviews Jesus, interesting some of the questions that go back and forth between them. And when he brings Jesus back and says, well, I can't find evidence against this guy, they then really start to turn it, don't they? And, and they now turn it from charges of blasphemy, which is how the whole thing had started, to charges of treason against Caesar and against Rome. And that scene towards the end there where they say to him, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, is a little, a little sort of, um, if you let this man go, we'll make sure Caesar hears about this. We know your history before you got here. We know you're on your last chance. Caesar will hear. So there is outright manipulation here. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So they're trying to bring Caesar in to it. And they've changed now from a charge of blasphemy to a charge of treason. So there's no evidence. There's no due process here. It is utter manipulation. It is the manipulative power of the religious authorities seeking to get Pilate to use, or perhaps better still, abuse his power. And didn't it say, actually, that Pilate was afraid of them? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what was going on here? In fact, there's a number of things where Pilate gets really troubled by it. As you noted there, he was afraid of them. What was he afraid of? I mean, at the end of the day, he was the man with power. But I think he knew that some of these leading Jewish religious leaders had sort of ears in the right places. And he's, he's afraid of what they might do. One of the other things where we see fear coming in is actually in Matthew's account of this gospel when his wife comes into the story. And in Matthew 27, 19, we read that while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, so while this is all going on, while he's actually there on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, dreams were seen as incredibly important in Bible times. It was believed God, or in the case of the Romans, the gods, spoke to you through dreams. And the more important a person you were, the more significant those dreams were. So when his wife sends this message saying, I've had a dream in the night, the gods have spoken to me, don't have anything to do with this guy. Now he's in a real cleft stick. You know, he is, he's feeling clearly that they have no evidence. It's clear, I find no basis for a charge against this man. What could be clearer than that? And yet there's this huge pressure from these religious leaders who are saying to him, Caesar will get to hear about this unless you do what we want. His wife saying, don't have anything to do with this guy. The gods have spoken to me in a dream. 
And I think if we put ourselves in Pilate's situation there, he is definitely in a cleft stick. And he clearly wasn't the strongest of men. It's funny, isn't it? You know, people with power and people particularly who abuse power still today are often very weak people, very insecure people. And they find their identity in, in the power that they have. And it looks like Pilate was a pretty insecure person deep down, though, you know, like bullies today, tried to get their way by just using their power. So he didn't really know which voice to listen to, his wife's voice, the religious leaders, or his own conscience. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's really pulled between the two, and, and that's why he tries to sort of push it back to them. Um, but they keep pushing it back to him. Why? Because he's the only one with the authority to have this guy executed. And eventually, all he can do is sort of wash his hands of the whole situation and hand Jesus over to them and in effect say, OK, do what you want with him. You know, a sort of a, what has this got to do with me? It's one of these religious things anyway. And he's trying to extricate himself from a very difficult situation here for him. As you said just now, the exchange of questions is noteworthy. It is, isn't it? Um, I mean, clearly he was intrigued by this guy. I mean, normally, Roman governors wouldn't be bothered with things like this. They'd, what's the evidence? Right, take him out, kill him. But he engages in a conversation. Now, I have no doubts that while there's no gospel evidence for this, I think from what we know of how Rome operated at the time, he would have heard about Jesus. I cannot imagine any governor of Judea not knowing about anything that was going on that involved crowds following people. Now, his own soldiers and spies would have reported uh, back to him. So he's undoubtedly heard stuff about this Jesus and is, I think, fascinated by him. And so begins with that first question, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I don't know what tone he said in that and where the emphasis came. You know, are you the king of the Jews? Because he looks at him and thinks, you don't look like a king to me. But it's fascinating. He starts with that and then Jesus says, you know, is that your own thoughts or someone else told you that? That's pretty bold to say, isn't it, in this situation. And, and then Pilate comes back, doesn't he? Am I a Jew? Am I supposed to know about all these religious niceties that you lot have between you? You know, uh, what is it you've done? And then Jesus sort of gives one of these enigmatic sort of tangential answers that he often does in life, saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, you know, my servants, my followers would have followed me. In other words, he's saying, Pilate, you, you and Rome have nothing to fear from me because my kingdom's not of this world. It's a completely different sort of kingdom. I'm not here to overthrow Rome as these guys would have you believe I am lying though they were as you might fear I am my kingdoms of another place ah ha ha Sir Pilate says so you are a king and he said yeah I am a king this is why I came it's interesting Jesus is more forthright in his answers to Pilate than he has been to the Jewish religious leaders who would constantly want to twist what he said why would that be 
Because the Jewish religious leaders would always want to twist whatever Jesus said. You know, if they'd said to him, are you Messiah? And he said, yes, they knew exactly what they thought. Ah, so you are going to lead a rebellion against Rome. And so he often gave enigmatic answers to the Jewish religious leaders. But here, he's nothing to fear from Pilate. Actually, Pilate has nothing to fear from him. Rome has nothing to fear from him, Jesus is saying. So feels quite comfortable with answering the questions outright. One of the things I then love as he does this backwards and forwards conversation about whether he's a king or not is that lovely question where Pilate says, what is truth? Uh, that's a really good postmodern word that, isn't it? In our world where there is no longer such thing as truth, a truth, there's my truth and your truth. And, but Jesus was the one who came to bring the truth. Uh, but Pilate is saying, you know, well, what is truth? Can we ever really get to the bottom of it? And the answer is, yes, you can. It's there standing before you. The truth is a person. Clearly out of this conversation, he finds absolutely nothing that would cause him to sentence Jesus to death. So takes him back out again, says, look, you know, it's Passover. We always release one prisoner. Shall I release Jesus to you? But the religious leaders manipulate and stir up the crowd to have them call for this insurrectionist Barabbas instead. Does Jesus slightly overstep the mark when he says, you have no power over me? It was not given you. Well, um, I don't know if I'd use the phrase he'd overstep the mark because what he was saying there was true. Of course, the Bible's very clear that no ruler has power unless a sovereign God has permitted that to happen. But I tell you what, it was incredibly courageous, wasn't it, in that situation to say to the man who held all the cards in the game, you know, you've got no power unless my father had given it to you. But here is Jesus's absolute security at the moment when Rome is about to condemn him to death on behalf of the Jewish religious leaders. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, it's not you doing this. My father's at work here. What's happening here is the plan that he and I had from the beginning of all eternity is getting worked out. And the reason you've got power to now hand me over and to have me condemned is quite simply because my father in heaven has allowed this to happen, and it's part of his plan. You think you're working out your plan? Oh, no, not at all. This is my father working out his plan through you, even though you can't see it. And when this exchange was over, as you said, Pilate washed his hands of the situation, but not just metaphorically. Yeah, I mean, he literally calls for water to wash his hands and dry his hands as a symbolic way of saying, I wash my hands of this situation. We still say that today, don't we? I, I wash my hands of this situation. Here's this guy. If you want to crucify him, I give you permission. Take him away. And I think what he's doing there, of course, is he's remembering his wife's dream. So he doesn't want to be held responsible before his gods for what he's done. So he says, well, I just wash my hands a bit. Here you are, he's yours. And of course, there's only one thing that they want. So in effect, 
He's washed his hands, but he couldn't wash his hands because the outcome was now inevitable. So the crucifixion is now moments away? Yeah, absolutely. Pilate hands him over to his soldiers to have him flogged. I mean, that was standard Roman procedure. Even if you'd not done anything wrong, you got a good flogging just to keep you in your right place. Flogging, of course, terribly, terribly cruel, not just a whipping, but those thongs had bits of either um, lead or iron or stone embedded into it so that as your back was flayed with these, your skin would be ripped apart. So the suffering has already started and there's the mockery as they dress him up in this robe and gamble for his belongings. Now, interestingly enough, that is not something that they just did for Jesus. Just down the road from here, as part of the pavement, they have discovered what's called the King's Game etched into the stone pavement. It's a, it's a bit like as if we were to find um, a chessboard engraved into the stone slabs. And the soldiers used to play this game called the King's Game. They played it with sheep's knuckles that served as the dice, and they used to roll it on this board. And the soldiers would pick one of their own uh, to be the king for the game, and they would dress him up and they'd give him a robe and a crown and so on. And then over the day, they'd play this game and gamble for not just his clothing, but all his possessions. I mean, it included, you know, his wife, uh, his home back in Rome and so on. And it culminated in gambling for who got to kill him. Now, eventually, Rome had to outlaw this game because, you know, sorry, we're losing too many soldiers. So what they're doing with Jesus at that moment is highly likely to have been they played that game with him. So as we read in the Gospels that they stripped him and put this robe on him, it, it wasn't just something mocking that they did for Jesus. It looked like it was an expression of this game that they often played, but they decided to make Jesus the one who was going to get mocked and crowned and taken from here. Just a short distance now, down the Via Dolorosa, to the place of crucifixion. As you reflect on how Pilate and Jesus talked together, was Jesus modelling how to handle people who have power? Yes, I think he was, David. And really what stands out in the whole of this story, in all the different gospel accounts, is Jesus's utter trust in his father. He refused to play power politics. Now, power politics were big in the world of his time. They're still big in the world of our time. And I think what Jesus is saying by what he models here at his condemnation is, don't get into playing power politics with people. Do you know what? There'll always be someone who's got a bigger roll of the dice than you in it. Don't play power politics. That's not the way of my kingdom. The way of my kingdom is to trust your heavenly father to come to your rescue and to do things his way rather than the world's way. So if there's any one lesson out of this whole episode about his condemnation, it's, yeah, don't get into the world's way of playing power politics. Simply give it to your father. 
and wait and watch and see what he will do when you trust the situation to him. Well, Mike, do pray for us now. Lord, here in this place that would have been the courtyard, the room where you were condemned, we stand with humble hearts that you should be prepared not to fight your corner, but to trust your Father. Help us when faced with challenging situations, when faced with power struggles in life, not to fight our own corner, but to trust you. For when we do, we know it will always have a far better outcome than if we tried to do it ourselves. So help us to trust you, even as your son trusted you at this place. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.